We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you here this morning. And it may be cold outside, but it's nice and toasty here. And looking forward to uh, the Christmas program this afternoon. Hope you can come back for that. This morning I'll ask you to turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Last Sunday evening, uh, we looked at the first four verses of this chapter, 1 Timothy 2, and uh, I'll bring back some application from that before we move on in the text this evening, Um, but I wanted to focus our attention this morning on verses 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Last Sunday night, we spoke on the topic of praying for the lost, praying for the lost, And this morning I want to um, pose to you this idea that uh, there is only one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ, a man himself. And it's really not my idea. It's truth from the word of God. But this very truth drives our evangelistic prayer. And I think that's why Paul puts that uh, specifically in this chapter in relationship to praying for the lost. Let me read for you the first five or six verses of this chapter, and then we'll look into it more deeply here. First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this to Timothy, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this, is the, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And then verse 7, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, uh, in those first four verses last Sunday evening, we were given four important truths that are to drive us to the throne room of grace to intercede on those who are lost. And in those first four verses, we learn, first of all, that we are to pray in such a way because we are encouraged to do so. Paul exhorts, he says, that this thing be done, that we pray in such a way for the lost. Secondly, we are to pray because the lost, when the lost are saved, it allows Christians to more freely live out their faith in God without resistance from rulers or authorities. We see this uh, in verse 2. It says, for kings and all who are in authority, so that, a conditional kind of statement here, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness 
and reverence. And we focused on this aspect last Sunday evening, that it's not wrong for us to desire to have a peaceable and quiet kind of life so that we can live out um, our lives in godliness and reverence. And we said we're not kind of in a uh, light-hearted manner. We're not looking for a kind of peaceable life where you're just sitting on your back porch enjoying a cool you know, lemonade or tea or whatever your favorite beverage is. No, you're looking to be able to live a peaceable and quiet life so that you can live it out in godliness and to be able to have an influence upon the world around you uh, with the gospel. And so that's the kind of peaceable and quiet life Paul is is uh, desiring and, and praying and having us pray that we should be able to lead that kind of life as well. The third truth that we learned last Sunday evening is this, that we are taught that praying for the lost is morally right. In verse 3, Paul writes, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What is good? Well, this kind of prayer, praying for the lost, interceding for them that they would come to a knowledge of, of Christ and believe into him. And then fourthly, I know we're moving kind of quickly through this, but in verse, uh, in verse 4 he says this, who, referring back to God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We see here that the salvation of the lost is the desire of God's heart. It is his desire that all men be saved. And we said this last Sunday evening, when we understand the heart of God, it drives us then to pray for the lost and for their salvation. God desires all men to be saved. And so I encouraged us last Sunday evening to have this kind of heart analysis. Do we have the same kind of heart that God has for the lost? Are we praying for their salvation? This morning, I want to focus on the fundamental truths that drive this kind of evangelistic prayer by focusing on Christ, the mediator for men. How would you answer if someone asked you this kind of question? Why do you want people to believe in your beliefs when there are, when there are other ways to God? Why do you want people to believe in your beliefs when there are other ways to God? Perhaps you haven't heard the question posed in that specific kind of way, but probably similarly, undoubtedly you've been challenged with this line of thinking that there are many ways to God or to heaven. And so how should we answer this kind of question in light of even this passage this morning? I say this, one simple way to answer this question is to show them from Scripture that there is only one way to God. We show them from Scripture, such as in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But also I think we can, we can show them this truth, this fundamental truth from our passage this morning in verse 5, where Paul writes this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So this morning I would like to unpack the significance of this statement as it relates to our evangelistic ministries and our praying for the lost, specifically even in this season of, of Christmas. The first truth that we see here in verse 5 is this, that God is one and there is only one God. One of the most fundamental teachings of the scripture is that God is one. God is one. And we see this from a number of passages 
uh, even especially in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35 and verse 39, or Deuteronomy 6, 4, also in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. This idea is uh, again emphasized again and again that God is one and that there is only one God. The fundamental truth that there is one God not only highlights the triunity of the three persons of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but it also highlights this, God's eternal exclusivity. There is only one God. It's not only highlighting his triunity, but also his exclusivity. Of course, this truth runs counter to the kind of pluralistic religiosity of our world, does it not? which rejects the concept of any kind of exclusive religious truth. There is no absolute truth. What you want to believe is true, and what he wants to believe is true, or she wants to believe is true. And so it, ex- it excludes and it rejects this kind of concept of exclusive religious truth. We are taught by the spirit of this age that the gods of the Christians, the Jews, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, are to be charitably considered equally valid gods. And we fight this kind, of, uh, this kind of concept in our world today in our evangelistic ministries, and so we need to be prepared to answer it, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. However, if this were true, the fact that you know, there is no exclusive religious truth, there would be many ways to salvation And hence, no need for us to pray in such a specific manner for the salvation of the lost. And so we see it does relate to our passage this morning that we are encouraged, exhorted to pray for the lost because there is only one way of salvation. And so we pray in such specific manner for them. Evangelistic prayer recognizes, therefore, that all must come to the one true God. And this is accomplished by coming to a knowledge of the truth, which is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the God-man. And that is what we focus on next in our passage here this morning. That's what Paul focuses on. He says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. When you pray for the lost, you are requesting that they what? They trust in Christ as their Savior. There's a specific kind of content to this that we're praying to the, for the ends of, is that they place their faith in Christ as their Savior. Why do we request it in this way? Well, because of our understanding of this fundamental truth. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. You know this, of course, and I know this from our study of God's word and our training up in it. But this truth is lost on the world around us, that there is only one way to God. The offense of the gospel and the cross work of Christ is this very fact, that the Bible teaches that there is only one mediator between God and men. They reject that notion. It's offensive to them because it goes against the grain of their thinking and of their beliefs and what they want to believe in, it rejects the fact that they are supreme in, their, in themselves, that they are autonomous and not you know, uh, accountable to a God. And so it is an offensive fact, an offensive fundamental truth 
to their thinking. Now, what does this word mediator mean? We need to understand that in order to understand the significance of it in this passage. The word mediator refers to someone who acts as the kind of middleman between two parties in the most kind of general sense. There's obviously more specific nuances to that, but when we think about a a mediator, that's somewhat of what we think of in a very basic sense, someone that acts between to bring about some kind of um, compromise for a situation, to bring about some kind of reconciliation between two parties. And so that is somewhat of how a mediator uh, functions. Mediators are used to bring about an agreement between two parties. In this historical audience, the original audience, Timothy and those who would have heard these words, would have been familiar with the idea of, uh, of a mediator from the Old Testament scriptures even, not just on a societal level or a governmental level. They would have obviously understood that, but even from a kind of religious sense, they would have understand, understood this idea of, of mediators from the Old Testament scriptures. Moses acted as a mediator of sorts between God and between the Israelites. Specifically, even if you think about on Mount Sinai, the people did not want to go near God. They wanted to stay far away, and they, they wanted Moses to speak with God, and, and so God went up on the mountain to speak with him on their behalf as a mediator between the two parties, between the people of Israel and, and between God. Of course, later on, we see another example of mediators, Once the Levitical priesthood was established, Aaron and the Levites acted as a sort of mediator between God and men in the religious functions of the day. It was only the Levites, the priests, who were able to enter into uh, the holy place and the holy of holies. The people were not allowed into that because of the kind of uh, barrier there was between God and man. And so the Levites functioned as mediators for them to bring uh, about uh, forgiveness uh, or kind of sacrifice, sacrificial uh, uh, restitution and reconciliation. However, the fact is even men like Moses were imperfect mediators because of their own moral imperfections. They lacked something necessary to be that kind of perfect mediator between God and man. And for thousands of years... God-fearing Gentiles and Jews recognized the lack of a perfect mediator. Think of Job uh, chapter 9, if you'll turn there. In this passage, he says this, He says, I wish, in a source, kind of a paraphrase away, I wish that there was someone to arbitrate between between me and God, a mediator of a sorts. Even Job, far before the time of of Moses and the the Levitical priesthood, recognized this lack of a mediator. So for thousands of years, God-fearing Gentiles and Jews recognized this lack, the need for some kind of better mediator between God and man. Of course, then, through the most unimaginable way, a virgin gives birth to a son. 
which is truly a miraculous conception in the most real sense, who would fill that void of which Job lamented the lack of a mediator, a perfect kind of mediator. The significance of Jesus Christ as the mediator between God and man is that he is the God-man. He is both God fully and fully man. He is fully God in every aspect of his essence and being, and he was fully man, uniquely qualified then to reconcile mankind with God because of his sinless perfection. As the God-man, Christ is uniquely qualified to serve as the go-between who can bring about reconciliation between sinful people and a holy God. So Paul writes then in verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus. Some other, other translations even put it this way, to emphasize even more the aspect of his humanity and uh, the fact that he was born in the flesh, translate it this way. Uh, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ, a man himself emphasizing the fact that there, he was a human, a man, being uniquely qualified then to be a mediator between God and men. Verse 6 tells us more about this man, this mediator, Jesus Christ. It says, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. How did Christ, the perfect mediator, accomplish the possibility of reconciliation as the only one true mediator between God and men, well, he did this through giving himself as the ransom for all. The word ransom is a significant theological term to describe Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for us, his giving of himself on our behalf. Think about this fact. Christ did not merely pay a ransom to free us from our sin. He himself was the ransom for our sin. When we think about that, I know we know that, and we, but when you think about that very aspect, he wasn't just giving something that he possessed. Well, I can get rid of that, you know, kind of a thought. You know, we have things around our house, clutter. Well, I can give him that. I don't really need that. No, that's not what Christ was doing. He was giving himself as the ransom for all to free you from your captivity to sin while you were still indulging in those sinful lusts and desires. He gave himself a ransom for you. Christ died your death, and he bore your sin. Christ voluntarily gave his life, not just something he possessed. John chapter 10 emphasizes this kind of point here. Let me read that for you, John 10, verse 17 and 18. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18 says this, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it, take it again. No one takes it from me, it's a voluntary act, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from 
my Father. Christ's death on the cross was not coerced. It was a willing kind of sacrificial act on our behalf. And Christ willingly went to the cross to be that ransom for us. This idea causes me to think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 as well, which says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. In being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Christ voluntarily gave himself, took on a lowly position, so that he might be that ransom for us, for all. Now at the end of verse 6, it says this, to be testified in due time, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. Now, the end of this verse probably refers to the proper timing of Christ's redemptive work according to God's divine will. In other words, God's chosen time to bring about his divine plan of salvation and demonstration of his mercy to all mankind has now come, and it's been displayed in this way through the death of Jesus Christ. At the perfect time, a virgin conceived... A baby, which we are celebrating in this season. But it wasn't just for any reason. I think we often maybe neglect that fact around the Christmas season. If we're focusing on his birth, which is a wonderful aspect, a necessary aspect to the, to the narrative. But he came and was born for a purpose, to be that ransom for us. And at that perfect time, he was born and grew administered, and then died. Paul then writes in verse 7 that it's for this very point or for this very reason that he was appointed a preacher and an apostle so that he could proclaim this message which had come in a, in a divinely purposed time, in due time. Paul says this, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. Perhaps there was some kind of doubt in the church, but I think more than anything that Paul is, is emphasizing this, this very fact, that this is not his words. He's not speaking out of his own mind. He's speaking what has been given to him in Christ, the very words of Christ. He is proclaiming to them this very truth. And for this very fact, Paul came to preach, to be an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So what is the significance of our prayers for the lost? Well, it's these things. It reflects the fundamental truth that there is only one way of salvation. There is only one God and one mediator, one way to know the Father, and to be reconciled to him. There is only one perfect mediator who is fully God and fully man. It points to the exclusivity of the only one true living God. 
whether people accept that notion, that very truth or not, doesn't discount the fact that it's true. And so when you are questioned on this very fact that, oh, there's other ways to know God or to go to heaven, or there's just simply other religious truths, we go to the scripture. We argue, we point from the scripture the very fact of what the Bible says. And we don't have to rely on philosophy and uh, the, the things of this age, the wisdom of this age, but we rely on the powerful word of God which speaks this truth that there is only one God. Our request for people to believe in Jesus Christ reflects the fundamental truth that there is only one mediator, only one person to bring about reconciliation between God and man, who he himself was a man. And that's the focus of the season which we're in today is the coming of Christ, the taking on of flesh, human form, so that it's not as if he was just kind of looked like human. That's not what it is. He was human. He was taking on flesh, able to sympathize with our weaknesses, tested yet perfect, making him the perfect qualified mediator. Whether you thought about it or not, when you are praying for the lost, these fundamental truths are what drives us to pray in such a specific manner for the lost. And not only that, but to expect then that God will answer those prayers. We don't pray thinking, well, I hope I'm praying the right kind of way. And we talked about this last Sunday evening as if sometimes we pray and we think, well, maybe later on we think maybe that really wasn't what God's will is. You know, I, I kind of asked a miss. It wasn't perhaps, you know, what I know would be something that God would desire of, of this situation. But we said this, this, there is assurance in this very fact that when we pray for the lost, it is God's will because it is his desire that all men are saved. And so we don't have to worry in those kind of situations of interceding for people. Is this God's will or not? The Bible says, and is very clear, it is his desire that all men be saved. And so we pray for the lost and expect that God will answer these prayers according to his perfect divine will. Now I want to go back just for a moment to the first four verses so that we can kind of tie both of these sections together and focus on uh, this idea of interceding for the lost, praying for them with supplications. And we said last time that uh, these kind of supplications and prayers are not themselves what is saving them. We're not praying them, you know, into salvation. We're not praying so that, you know, some miraculous means they're just saved without even their awareness. It's kind of a foolish idea that we to contrive of, but that's not what these prayers are accomplishing. We have a very specific reason why we pray in this way, and we are supplicating and interceding so that the truth would come to them, so that they could hear it with their physical ears and understand it and come to a knowledge of the truth. That then requires that they somehow hear the gospel if those prayers are to be answered. And so even last time we posited this question, how will God answer those prayers? Well, if you're praying for the lost, he may very well choose you to go. And so we must be ready to be the answer to the very prayers that we pray, that God would save those lost. And so 
I encourage you, even with this very fact, to use verses even like verse 5 when sharing with the lost this very truth, that there is one God, explain to them what that means, and there is one mediator. This in itself is a wonderful gospel truth that we can use in our own evangelistic ministries to point the people to the very fact that there is only one true God. It's not an easy task to convince someone of that, but at the end of the day, it's not us that is doing the convincing. It is the Spirit of God working in them to convince them of this truth. And so we, we share with boldness and unashamedness of this fundamental truth. Finally, in verse 2, I want to just focus on this point, that when we are praying for kings and all who are authority, we are praying for their salvation so that we can lead this quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And I said last time that we're not dependent on, um, on the authorities and rulers to be saved in order to live out our lives in godliness. We can do that despite what the authorities say, and we are to do that despite what they do and say. But when they come to salvation, or at least when they look favorably upon God's people, it allows us to further and more quickly advance the gospel message. And so even in this season of, of the holidays, I encourage and exhort us to be praying for all who are in authority. It may be difficult at times to pray for them because of perhaps the immorality that they've expressed, the kind of lifestyle that they've shown. There are tremendously wicked people out there, and we may feel that those people don't deserve salvation. Why would I pray for them? They deserve the justice that's coming to them. Well, let me encourage you, that's not the right kind of mindset as believers. Regardless of their sinful nature and their sinful tendencies, they need Christ. And we've said this before, we were once as they were. Perhaps we didn't express it in such a way. Perhaps it's simply because we weren't in the limelight. We weren't in the public eye. But if we were... Imagine the, the sin that would be revealed in our own lives if we were in the spotlight, spotlight like them. So let us pray for all who are in authority and for all men because it is, uh, it is beneficial for the advance of the gospel and because it is acceptable in the sight of God. And because of the truths and the fundamental truths we've looked at this morning, that God is one and Jesus Christ is our mediator, we pray fervently for their salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that we've had. I thank you for the truth of your word, that there is only one God. Lord, He is exclu- you are exclusively God. There is no other gods. And through your mercy, because of your mercy, and because of your divine plan, you sent the perfect mediator. Lord, we thank you for that that merciful act, that gracious act. Lord, Lord, to fill that void of needing that kind of perfect person to go between the righteous and holy God and sinful man to reconcile us. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came and was born to die for us. 
Lord, may we be uh, fueled in our passion to pray for the lost because of what your word says here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Lord, may we trust and have boldness and not doubt that you will answer those prayers because we know it is at the heart of you, it is in your heart that all men would be saved. And so to this end we pray in Christ's name. Amen.